Hello and welcome to September's Rich Pickings. I'm Richard Edgar and I've come outside for a break after just recording this month's podcast. Today we're looking at what a road to recovery means for portfolios, despite part lockdowns and restrictions being reintroduced in many parts of the world. Where should investors put their money as central banks and governments attempt to resuscitate economies? And what are the risks to avoid when radical policies are rewriting the rules? Listen on to find out more. With me are Anna Stubnitska, Global Economist, Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager, Charlotte Harrington, and Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Steve Ellis. Welcome to you all. Hello, Hello Richard. Richard. Right, well, we're heading into a second lockdown of sorts here in the UK. And what I'd like to know is, um, what have you learned from the first lockdown? Charlotte, you first of all. Well, I think I've learned not to sit on my glasses. Uh, and why, why is that? Why is sitting on your glasses a lockdown lesson, Charlotte? Because you can't get them mended, you see. So you have to wear wonky glasses, which is, um, which is a bit annoying, yeah. Okay, good, good, good reason. Um, Anna, what about you? What have you learned from lockdown one? Yeah, mine is a bit different. Um, I learned that uh, closing schools is not a good idea. You've got children, haven't you? <laughs> Yes, but it doesn't affect me so much. Uh, so it's not the, the childcare um, reason here. It's more that I think we will learn over the years that uh, closing schools and keeping kids out of education for so many months will probably have uh, profound implications for their uh, life prospects. And so this time, because the schools are open, I'm very happy. Totally good. Okay. And um, Steve, uh, what about you? Uh, you? You've made it through the first lockdown. We seem to be on something that looks a little bit like um, a lockdown to what did you learn first time around well i think the uh, the first lesson i learned was don't buy a dog uh in the first weekend of lockdown <laughs> um but they, on a more serious note i you know i think um the one thing that the lockdown has taught me is number one uh you know i was very apprehensive about having traders working from home and the operational issues that arise from that but um i think we've dealt with that incredibly well and we haven't seen any sort of detrimental impact um from uh, working from home um, and then I think the second thing as well, you know, going into the corona crisis back in March, we really hadn't seen an episode like this, a sort of risk-off episode. Maybe uh, final quarter of 2018 was something of a, you know, disruption to dislocation in markets. But this was a big shock to markets. And I guess one thing we've taken away from it was we've all reassessed our liquidity models and, you know, being a lot more cautious than way of running our funds and having more liquidity buffers. Excellent. Okay. So um, a big shock to the system, perhaps also having a puppy running around um, while you were while you're at it. But, exactly. but you've come through, Steve. So well done. <laughs> now, Anna, um, Steve set the, 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 uh, the scene there about the, uh, the crisis. And you've laid out your anatomy of a crisis um, before on rich picking. So where are we now in this pandemic from a, a macroeconomic point of view? I think we are now approaching the end of the uh, reopening bounce phase, uh, which started uh, sometime in May when the economy started reopening um, and lasted through the summer. And I think we probably have a little bit um, more scope uh, to see that reopening momentum to continue. Um, but as I look towards um, at the end of the year, I think the trajectory, that recovery trajectory is likely to be much flatter, um, especially in uh, the labor market. 
uh, as easy post um, lockdown gains are exhausted. Um, and now we see quite a differentiation um, across sectors. Uh, for example, the latest uh, uh, PMIs, these are uh, business confidence indices, uh, show that um, manufacturing continues to improve, um, but services PMIs are still quite suppressed, um, as of course a lot of the um, sectors uh, in services have to either remain closed or operate at sort of partial capacity given the social distancing restrictions. Well, yes, I mean, um, that there's panic in some parts of hospitality as they look at the measures being introduced in um, here in the UK and in, in other countries as well. The, the way you described it, though, sounded almost optimistic. You're talking about a flatter recovery, but you're not you're not talking about any contraction. Uh, well, I think that uh, we had a very strong rebound, so relative to that strong rebound through the summer, uh, now the trajectory is going to be much flatter. And of course, it is conditional on uh, further restrictions. Uh, um, like here in the UK, uh, we are discussing the potential uh, second lockdown. So of course, uh, uh, as more measures are imposed, we might actually see some contraction in activity in some sectors. But overall, we firmly believe that we are unlikely to go into a countrywide lockdown um, anywhere in the world. And so uh, we do not see uh, such a sharp contraction as we observed uh, back in, in, in March, April. Well, Charlotte, um, uh, I know that you don't think we're going into a, a national lockdown in the, in the, in the old sense, uh, at least. How does what Anna is saying feed into the way that you're allocating um, at the moment? I think um, a couple of things to say, really, which is that when we certainly when we look at the two very big economies, so China and the US, there does seem to be a recovery underway. And the sort of second lockdowns that, that we've mentioned here have been really quite or the risk of them has been quite focused on, on Europe. And, and as you say, I don't think we're probably going to go into the sort of really harsh lockdowns that we had before. Um, so in the round, uh, that sort of continued recovery, but admittedly not at the same pace, because, because clearly we're not coming from the same start point, um, is, is not a bad environment for, for risk in general. Having said that, there are some pockets of the market that have run very, very far. And, and for instance, the, the US tech sector really stands out. So, so in terms of allocating that, where you allocate that risk, you, you can look for areas that are more undervalued and, and have lagged. And, and that can be some of the more sort of cyclical, cyclical sectors and, and regions. Okay, Steve, let's come to you again. How are you reading markets at the moment? Um, have they got it right in terms of the, uh, the way that they've been um, developing over the past few weeks? Well, the last few weeks, you've seen that we've had um, a big reversal in some of the, the macro trends of the last six months or so. But it's been very, it's confounded a lot of people why we've seen this um, risk assets, whether it's credit spreads, equities, perform exceptionally well in an environment where growth has been incredibly impaired. And the explanation for that is simply that um, central banks have really pushed investors into risk assets because of what they've done with policy. So, Increasing the balance sheets, they've been doing a whole host of um, support measures as well for money markets and so on. But the, you know, for me, the biggest driver of markets has been this tsunami of dollar liquidity that's been percolating through markets. You know, the Fed have increased their balance sheet to seven trillion dollars, and when you look between now and the end of the year, um, the G6 central banks are going to be doing another $3 trillion in balance sheet expansion. And the, I guess the big difference this time, which is with what's happened in the past, is that you've seen a rapid increase in money supply growth because of commercial banks have been increasing their deposit liabilities. It's the first time it's happened 
really in the last decade or so. I think that's why in the absence of being, being able to go into the real economy, which is impaired, the dollar liquidity has been going into risk assets. So I think that's what's been driving equity markets higher, whether it's, you know, it's in, in the growth stocks in particular, the long duration type of um, equity markets, uh, pockets of the equity market, like the tech stocks, for example. And in a fixed income, it's been very much driven by, you know, core yields have been pushing lower, credit spreads have been going tighter as well. So it's been a very strong market um, here. But like you said, the last couple of weeks, we've had a reversal in this with the dollar strengthening. Um, and we've seen, you know, credit spreads begin to widen out and so, and so on. But I think this is just more of a hiccup in still the trend between now and year end, which is where we see risk assets performing quite well because of this liquidity scenario. Yeah, it's, it's really just... changed. Yeah, I was going to come to you, Charlotte, actually, because it's changed the um, the context um, completely. Could you add a little bit more detail in terms of, um, you know, where, where, where you're seeing opportunities? So I guess, again, it goes back to the, the areas that have, that have lagged. So you can think of things like autos, European autos uh, are a sector that are quite interesting. It's a sector that's quite interesting when people are increasingly moving away from public transport uh, and, and would rather... Um, go in their own sort of isolated vehicle, as it were. Uh, and, and we're at the early stages of recovery. Interest rates are very low, which tends to support interest rate sex- sensitive sectors. So housing and autos have, have really sort of led the way here. Uh, you can also look to sort of EM equities, which still have quite a heavy weight in technology, but don't have the sort of valuations that the US does uh, and is very much supported by the kind of weak dollar trend. And I just add to something that, that Steve said, he talked about the sort of monetary policy response. Um, but, but we also need to bring into the fold as well the fiscal response, which has been really very large. And so when lockdown happened, consumers essentially got a, almost a sort of a, a windfall, basically. They, they were forced to save um, because their spending dropped and the fiscal authorities put money in their pockets. And as we've come out, they've now spent that money. Uh, and I think that goes a long way to explaining the extent of the recovery in fundamentals and central banks have certainly had an effect, but the real economy has also changed. Anna? Just to uh, pick up on this point, uh, when we think about the recovery from here, um, it is still very much con- very much contingent on that fiscal intervention, fiscal stimulus. I believe it has to continue uh, together with that liquidity uh, to uh, prevent very deep damage to the economy. Uh, And we're already seeing some scarring effects, particularly in the labor market. And I think an an extra critical point here is that the fiscal can and should become more targeted. So again, it's about supporting those those sectors that can't get back to normal uh, and allowing the sectors that can to to continue and and not have that extra support. Um, But the appetite to to give that support is pretty high. So we see it overnight in the UK. Um, we're not having a budget because every day is a budget day and, uh, and Rishi Sunak is, is supporting certain sectors again. And, and I think that probably continues where we have a bit of a sticking point is in the US and perhaps we'll get on to the political uh, angle we will, there. We will. I, w- I want to take the opportunity now, though, to have a look at the economic picture that you've, you've all um, painted there, but also where do we go from here? And so we're going to hear from Portfolio Manager Ian Samson in Hong Kong. Um, I spoke to him on a call earlier and he follows the Fidelity Leading Indicator, which regular listeners will know, aggregates all sorts of economic and business surveys and other data to provide a picture of what the global economy is likely to do in the next few months. Here's what he had to say about it. Ian, economies around the world seem to be recovering. So perhaps it's no surprise that the fly is moving upwards. But actually, it's really rocketing upwards at the moment. So what, what does it tell us? 
Our fidelity leading indicators three-month change is now almost as positive as it was negative at the, at the very trough of the crisis, which is quite remarkable. And it suggests that in the near term, at least, leading indicators of the global economy from business surveys to key shipping indicators, global trade indicators, these suggest that we still have positive momentum as we enter the fourth quarter of this year. Now, that's, as I understand it, that's um, a really positive reading in terms of change. But what about the level, if you compare where the fly is now with where it was, say, a year ago? Yes, no, that's a very good point, because almost any indicator that we look at in a, a three-month change or even six-month change terms now is going to start looking very good just because they're being compared to complete lockdowns. So what I'm actually much more focused on is things like year-on-year changes, where it's comparing us, broadly speaking, to a pre-coronavirus level of activity as opposed to the, the real depths of the crisis. And this isn't showing a, a disastrous reading on the fidelity leading indicator by, by any means, but it's only undone about just over a third of the damage that, that we'd seen at the very worst um, readings earlier in the year. Oh, really? So there's, there's two thirds still to go? Almost, almost, just over half. And now it's worth saying that that's much faster than the recovery we saw after the global financial crisis in terms of undoing the damage. But it does also suggest that we need this positive momentum that we're seeing in the, the latest months of data to really continue to keep going through the end of the year if we are to fully prevent longer term scarring or to completely unwind the damage that was done by those uh, draconian initial lockdowns. So where have you got most confidence that um, that momentum, um, that, that, that remarkably strong recovery will continue? Well, so the thing that gives me most optimism is the breadth of the recovery in terms of the fidelity, the indicator subsectors. So four out of the five um, different subsectors, uh, things like global trade, business surveys, industrial orders, commodity linked indicators, they're all very, very positive. Another thing would be things like um, the the consumer income data that's coming out of the US where we've seen uh, due to huge amounts of, of government transfers, the amount of excess savings that consumers have been able to, to stow away total about one and a half months of, of expenditure. That's a big buffer that the households seem to have saved up to help combat some job losses or, or underemployment in the coming months. So those things give me some optimism that enough has been done on the fiscal side or is being done on the fiscal side to give us this kind of bridge into next year and into a vaccine. So we're seeing the benefit there of um, of some of the government action. But um, what about consumer confidence itself and um, how that's playing out? So consumer confidence is one of the least encouraging parts of the fidelity leading indicator. And it's also something that I've, since the start of the crisis, I've been tracking most closely because for all the dollar amounts that you hear in terms of government-backed business lending schemes, furlough schemes for for employees. What really matters is, is what's actually getting into consumers' wallets and is actually getting into consumers' heads so that they feel that their financial future is is still secure. So what's, what, are your, what are your thoughts there then? So definitely in the US and the Eurozone, consumer confidence is off the lows. 
but it's been actually quite flat for the past three to four months. So while you've seen, for instance, business indicators continue to really soar, consumer confidence is conversely starting to plateau. I would describe it as 2013-like. So we've sort of zoomed straight to a point where consumers aren't feeling too apocalyptic, but the world clearly isn't firing on all cylinders and, and we look a bit stuck there. Ian Sampson talking to me there from uh, Hong Kong. Now, Anna, Ian underlines the importance of consumers, especially US consumers. We know that Americans have been buoyed over the last few months with furlough schemes and checks from the government, but it's looking less and less likely that Washington will renew any fiscal package ahead of the election in November. Now, is that something that you're worried about? Um, what would it mean for the recovery? I think it is quite worrying. Uh, now it's clear that uh, Congress uh, will not attach any additional stimulus to the continuing resolution. Um, of course, there is some chance, but uh, it seems to be uh, very low at the moment. Um, and so this implies that those extra unemployment benefits that, is, um, that are currently being disbursed um, and for the fiscal support uh, will have to wait until uh, 2021. Um, and as we know, the $600 a week um, uh, additional employment insurance already expired uh, at the end of July. Trump um, uh, extended uh, that to um, at $300 um, in supplemental unemployment benefit using his executive orders. Interestingly, the whole amount, which is about $44 billion, has not been dispersed yet because um, of um, uh, operational issues at state level. So we, we're still likely to see that disbursement to continue over the next couple of months. But um, clearly, um, no uh, additional fiscal uh, from here means that um, uh, we will see a meaningful hit to disposable income, and it should weigh on consumption and on GDP growth in the uh, fourth quarter of the year. So the machinery of government is beginning to slow down ahead of the election um, in the US. But there is one other very important factor that's, that's uh, on alert all the time, and that's the Federal Reserve. Now, will they step in? Because um, the chairman, Jerome Powell, made clear at the last uh, FOMC meeting that the Fed's current position assumes that there will be further fiscal stimulus uh, from Congress. Yeah, it's interesting to see in the past um, uh, couple of days, we've seen uh, street generally uh, downgrading uh, the focus for Q4, uh, given uh, no prospect for fiscal support. Um, and But the Fed has been sending quite mixed messages on this. Um, actually, we've had a couple of Fed speakers uh, over the past few days uh, saying that the Fed uh, is already doing uh, a lot and they actually believe that um, there are strong drivers in the US economy uh, that will uh, allow the economy to continue recovering without the additional fiscal stimulus. So this has been a somewhat hawkish message from the Fed. I think it's likely that at this point, as long as nominal interest rates uh, remain uh, remain low, they will probably not uh, introduce uh, much more fiscal stimulus, perhaps some additional QE towards the end of the year. I think a lot depends on the outcome of the elections as well. I think we increasingly see central banks calling for, for more fiscal and, and that tells you that central banks have uh, got effectively to their to their lower bound and they're using uh, more and more sort of 
unconventional policy and, and trying to save some of some of that for, for when they really need it. Um, so I don't think it's that surprising to hear the Fed putting pressure on fiscal. And really, I think the Fed see their job as smoothing that issuance as and when it arrives, uh, as opposed to really doing anything on short rates or, or anything like that at the moment. Okay, well, staying with you, Charlotte, because our latest analyst survey at Fidelity suggested that management sentiment is improving in almost every region and has now caught up with China, which of course was first into the crisis and first out. Now, which parts of the world do you think are looking most favourable at the moment? And I suppose, of course, which ones are the worst? When it comes to our positioning, we're actually a bit more cautious on the US, even though we are seeing that kind of rest of world catch up. And the reason for that is is really down to valuations uh, and and also some election uncertainty over the next the next few months. How does it tally with corporate earnings, though? So corporate earnings in the US are very much leading the way on a, on a regional basis. But again, it comes back to the valuation point, which is, um, do we think that, that prices are fully discounting those earnings? And I think um, from, from what we're looking at, we, we do. So it's quite a complicated picture in some ways. Steve, as a, a CIO, a chief investment officer, you've got a team of people that you're, you're leading. Um, what advice are you giving your portfolio managers as they try to navigate this? The message that uh, I'm giving the portfolio managers is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is still, I think, a liquidity-driven risk asset, risk-on um, phase that we're in. As balance sheets, uh, central bank balance sheets uh, continue to be expanded, and the US Treasury, for example, can um, draw down $1.5 trillion in reserves it's, it's holding at the Fed between now and year end. So there's there's plentiful amounts of dollar liquidity in the system, I think. And that, for me, is notwithstanding what we're seeing in the last couple of weeks with this uh, unwind that we're seeing in some pretty crowded positions in things like you know, tech stocks and so on, and the short dollar position. I, I do think that this is going to continue towards the end of the year. You know, the election's coming up. I know that creates uncertainty and so on. But this is very much a market which is driven by financial repression with central banks all putting interest rates close to zero and, you know, giving forward guidance in the case of the Fed, um, saying that they're not going to be changing policy rates for the next three years or so. It's kind of forcing investors into wanting income here. And so so my message is that, you know, keep keep going with this. I think there's there's more to go with a risk on rally here. But the concern, you know, again, towards the end of the year, and you're always at this time of year, you ask the question, well, you know, you, you looked into the, the following year and you say, what's going to happen there? And um, I'm very much of the view that this is a, a reflation environment we're in right now. So we've been seeing a widening break-even inflation. Real yields have been pushed more and more negative by the actions of central banks and very low growth scenario. So nominal yields, the 10-year yields in the US have stayed pretty much static at around about just about 70 basis points or so. Um, but the message I'm giving right now is um, as we go into next year, I'm, I'm still of the view that you've got to go for income here. So, you know, you, you want to find, you know, for example, I think China high yield stands out with a yield to worse of 9%, uh, distributing income of 8%. You know, that for me, with China going into coronavirus first and coming out first, that to me is something which really stacks up as a good income generating asset class. But the, the message for next year is I do think we're going to see some problems in that the market's underestimating inflation. I know it's a big debate that goes on at the moment between deflation, uh, disinflation, and inflation. And I'm very much of the view that with the kind of monetary stimulus and M2 growth running at 23%, fiscal easing and so on, I think you know inflation's on the cards. 
And so this is the time for next year that you want to be reducing duration and looking for income. Anna, Steve sounds quite in- convinced that inflation isn't far off. I have an inkling that um, you, you might not have exactly the same view. Yeah, we had uh, we've had numerous debates on the topic. It, it's a very complex picture, and there are uh, many factors to consider, and also different time horizons, and actually different definitions of inflation and levels of inflation. Um, first of all, to say that when I talk about inflation, I mean consumer price inflation. So what's actually happening in the real economy? What's feeding into the the CPI? Um, some people, and uh, that might include Steve, are talking about asset price inflation. And I think this is, these are two different things to distinguish, at, at least in terms of what's happening in the real economy and the potential reaction from the central banks. S- Steve, that's what's happened over the past decade, isn't it? We've had central banks pumping money in, but it just went to assets yeah. um, uh, rather than Absolutely. into the real world. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, I'm very much sure of the monetarist camp. You know, you saw a huge amount of stimulus in the last decade or so post the GFC. Um, and my analogy of this is like, you know, the, the Fed and other central banks were expanding their balance sheets. They were, you know, cutting interest rates and so on. And it's like running a bath, right? Turning the taps on and having a plug out. All the money was just being parked by sent by commercial banks back at the Fed. And it never really seeped out into the real economy. There was no, you know, there was still resolution from the banks and they weren't uh, increasing their deposit liability. So, mo- so money supply growth just remained very stagnant, around about, you know, on average, in the last decade, about 5% when you're looking at M2. Now, now um, with what central banks are doing, you're seeing, again, M2 growth uh, in the US is running at 23% year on year, and it's likely to go higher. It's just a massive increase in money supply. And I know that, you know, when you're looking at uh, the, the, the sort of inflation pass-through here, people will say, well, the velocity of circulation of money is still falling. You know, MV equals PT is the, you know, the identifier. And, and I think, who, who knows, right? I do think V could actually start stabilizing here for, for a number of reasons. But the pure monetary growth that we're seeing right now is going to pass through, I think, into inflation. So that's a departure. What, what we've seen before is that all balance sheet expansion has just seeped in. Uh, in the, you know, we have a zombified economy with interest rates at close to zero. You know, there's no clearing from um, corporates and so on. There's no creative destruction. So that that has just really seeped into asset prices. So the the, the, the plug is firmly in the um, in the bar. The plug now. is in. Yeah, I think the plug is in. So the money the money supply side is is going to be the key thing here. And I think once we see some stabilization from you know vaccine from COVID and growth numbers start to stabilize, that's when I do think it's going to end up in consumer prices as well, and more structurally because we'll see onshoring. Um, and we'll see deglobalization and so on. So there's a structural element to it as well. Okay, that sounds like a, a logical argument. And I could see you nodding there. Does that answer your question? Yes, asset prices now, but into the real economy shortly thereafter. Well, I think it remains to be seen. Um, I think in the medium term, we are going to see persistent output gap, at least until we have the vaccine and it's broadly rolled out and everyone is vaccinated um, so we can get rid of the social distancing restrictions. Um, but for the time being, that uh, um, COVID activity ceiling between 
5 and 10% relative to pre-pandemic levels um, will be there uh, across countries. So the output gap uh, uh, will not be closed for some time. We have a huge debt overhang, as we know. Um, uh, we have even more zombie companies now than before um, and potentially um, weaken investment uh, from the corporate sector given the pressures for balance sheet strength um, and also uncertain prospects for the fiscal stimulus. So all this in the medium term, I think, will continue contributing to relatively low inflation. Now, I think we will see normalization uh, to you know pre-pandemic dynamics, but I don't see inflation going well, be- well above the central bank targets. And then w- what Steve is talking about, I think will be highly contingent on monitoring fiscal policy. So if we continue seeing this um, um, massive fiscal stimulus combined with the monetary stimulus, and in fact, um, if we see this move of policy uh, or monetary policy towards uh, fiscal domination, where debt is just monetized and money uh, is printed and that goes into the real economy, then yes, of course, we will see inflation going above the target to 3 4 5% perhaps. But I would say, again, this is very much policy contingent and a longer term prospect. Longer term. Okay. Is that um, something you agree with, Charlotte? Um, as you've heard the two sides of the argument um, that yes, it'll come, but uh, it's whether it's jam tomorrow or jam in quite a long time. Or maybe yes, not well, jam, actually, um, Marmite. I think it's jam, yeah. Marmite. Um, so I guess the inflation debate has become so polarised and you're either the, um, calling for huge inflation or, or big deflation. And um, I think I'm going to take the middle way, uh, which is that actually inflation can move quite normally back towards 2% and above 2% and over a time frame that's quicker than people realise. Uh, and the reason I say that is because firstly, inflation tends to follow growth. Growth spouts back very strongly. Why wouldn't inflation? And secondly, uh, on the time frame point, um, I think it's really interesting that when we look at the data, the inflation data, it's all surprising to the upside. Um, if you look at some of the survey measures around companies' intentions to increase versus decrease prices, actually, they're signaling that people are not decreasing prices. And I think it's possible that this pandemic has been so short and sharp that corporates haven't adjusted their prices. And therefore, the the return to quite normal levels of pre-pandemic inflation happens quite quickly. And then you add on all the factors that we've just spoken about in terms of the monetary and fiscal response. and, And I think it's entirely reasonable to expect that inflation continues to push higher from there. And um, Steve, just coming back to you before we move on to uh, maybe um, allocating in this environment, what are the practical risks that you see for the central banks that are having to balance um, these two arguments? I'm sure they're having them as much as uh, as much as we are. Well, I think um, central banks have to be careful what they wish for. So once you introduce inflation into the system, once they, you know, the Fed have committed themselves to not changing policy rates for the next three years. And I'm tolerating higher inflation above an average of 2% in the case of the Fed. And the one area which I think is mispriced is that, you know, we've term risk premium on the Treasury curve has been pushed to all-time lows. And I think that's down to um, what central banks have done. But what we've seen more recently, and it's very much uh, mirroring what's happening in risk assets, we've seen inflation break-evens moving higher. So if you look at the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, which is five-year, five-year break-even, it's now at 1.7% or so. And and, and I think my, my concern is that the market's just not giving enough inflation risk premium or term premium into the curve, and that um, central banks are going to find themselves in a situation where 
if inflation does rear its head, which I think is a very, very strong possibility here, there's going to be an almighty taper tantrum um, similar to what we've seen in 2013. And I just um, add to that, actually, which is that even though we've seen such a strong rebound in risk assets, some of these sort of bond markets, you haven't really seen the positioning rotation play out to the same degree. And I think that comes back to Steve's point, which is that people don't really believe that inflation is coming. Uh, they talk about it as something to happen down the line, but, but not necessarily something to worry about today. Uh, and, and if that does come through quicker than expected, then, then I think that really could in, impact uh, a number of markets. So you're absolutely right. So, so that's it. When you look at nominal yields, right? Nominal yields are made up of real yields, inflation uh, expectations, and an inflation risk premium. And I just don't think, I think that the, the last two, there's no premium there for inflation volatility. I think investors are just so in very much in the mindset, the kind of Pavlovian response saying, well, we haven't had inflation in the past, in the last decade, despite repeated um, episodes of quantitative easing. So why is it going to happen now? Surely there's more deflation forces here with a very, you know, a lot of slack in the economy. Wage pressure is still very muted. But like I say, I think the market should at least price some, some inflation risk premium in here and term premium because there is a huge amount of stimulus going on right now. And, um, and that can find its way into the system alongside those structural changes, the reonshoring I'm talking about. Sounds reasonable, Anna. Well, I wanted to add um, in terms of the risks for central banks, actually, this scenario that uh, Steve is describing uh, is, I think, quite perfect for them. That's exactly what they want. They want to get inflation into the system um, and they will uh, work on their forward guidance uh, and other communication methods to uh, hopefully avoid the taper tantrum. But even if there is a taper tantrum, um, that will perhaps lead to some uh, tightening in financial conditions. And that also means that they will be able to to tolerate that high inflation for longer um, as per the, uh, the Fed's new framework. Um, so actually, I think uh, the upside risks to inflation here are not as scary for central banks because they have the tools to control it, various tools now. Uh, but what they are really uh, are afraid uh, is a real nightmare scenario for them would be low inflation or deflation, Japanification scenario, right? Uh, because there are no effective tools to fight deflation in the current framework. Um, and that's what they're scared of. So I think if inflation surprises on the upside, uh, there might be some risk to the markets given the current pricing. But uh, for, for central banks, it, I guess it will add more credibility uh, to their frameworks. And by the way, I don't think they're so confident that uh, even with the new framework that the Fed just announced, they will be able to uh, introduce inflation in the, into the system. And as I said, I'm actually myself quite doubtful. It sounds it. I think this is what, uh, this is interesting because the Fed have introduced this flexible average inflation targeting framework. And, uh, and people refer to that as this incredibly dovish um, announcement. Uh, and this is where timeframes are quite important, because in the short run, it is very dovish. But in the long run, the Fed have one objective, and that is to raise rates. And they want to raise rates because they want more room to cut rates in the future. Uh, and so actually, thinking about it as a, a, the ultimate success of that, of that uh, framework is, is a rate hiking path, uh, actually just means that, that, that in the near term, we've got something going on that could be quite positive for risk assets. But in the longer term, if they're successful, that the world changes quite quickly as they start to hike rates. Well, how much would you need to see in terms of inflation before you started changing your um, allocations? 
So the Fed themselves has said a moderate overshoot from the 2%. So they haven't given a number to that. I think people talk generally about sort of 2.5, maybe a bit more. But, but we have to remember that the Fed will be viewing their policy with respect to whether or not it's accommodative or not. So it's entirely possible that they hike rates when inflation gets to two, two and a half and are still accommodative and are still allowing inflation to, to move higher. But really, that's all to be fleshed out really by them over the coming months. So you can't know what they're going to decide in that front, but how are you preparing for it? What, um, where would you start to um, put uh, your, um, your portfolio? Well, I mean, from a tactical perspective, knowing that, that short rates are, are going to be kept very low and, and policy very accommodative until we get to, to those levels of inflation, and, and certainly the Fed are talking about 2023, um, but then, then we sort of work more within that, that framework. So, so it goes back to being sort of biased to being somewhat, somewhat risk on here, but, but actually quite cautious, I think, about longer end yields, because that's where the, the surprise on, on the inflation side could, could really start to come through, um, perhaps not in a huge magnitude, but, but certainly I think there's some upside uh, to, to the yield curve here. And Steve, anything to add? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with Charlotte on this. I, I do think we could see some curve steepening taking place, and uh, particularly the US Treasury curve. Um, I guess so. That would warrant uh, reducing duration. Um, so still wanting that income, but reducing duration. I guess that the one thing um, that we have to be conscious about is that there's a limit to which the curve can steepen here, because uh, you know the curve is made up of future expectations of interest rates. And, you know, the further out you go, you have um, inflation expectations and inflation risk premium built in, right? So so in the, in the next three years, you basically know that the Fed are not going to be moving, right? So the interest rate is going to be locked. So it, it kind of limits to the amount to which the curve can actually steepen and to, where, to which 10-year um, yields in the US, which are at 70 basis points now, can actually rise. It's not like I'm pounding the table here to say, you know, there's going to be a, a big taper tantrum. There's going to be a big sell-off in duration. That you know, the, there's a big unwind here of a 40-year trend in sequential lower yields. Um, but I just think the risk is to the upside. But the problem for the Fed, the problem is that there is so much debt outstanding now, and it's only been exacerbated by COVID. Um, that you know, global private, public and private sector debt um, is now at 280% of GDP, and you've got. Places like Italy, for example, in a balance sheet recession. In other words, by virtue of very low yield interest rates, they're still able to service their debt, but there's just not enough growth to stop the so the denominator, nominal GDP, debt to GDP, it's just not high enough to erode the value of debt. It's actually going higher and higher. So, so the last thing that central banks need right now is higher yields because this virtuous cycle of your lower risk-free rates and credit spreads having tightened in in this, you know, this huge tsunami of uh, liquidity accommodation has been very virtuous in that def- expected default rates have come down um, and markets have, ex- have performed extremely well. Where it unwinds is that if you see, a, um, you know, if you do see core yields moving higher, um, we could see an unwind of that. The refinancing costs go higher, so therefore, you know, could perpetuate some some default risk and so on. So the the Fed and other central banks have to limit the amount to which. Yields can sell off, and the the curve can steepen. So th- this is the this is the sword of Damocles that's, that's hanging over the debt markets, and they can put a rock under that sword with something like um, yield curve control. But um, yeah, I, th- they seem I think to have that's a possibility. That. It's a possibility, and you know, let's not rule that out. I think 
that could be the end game at some stage, you know, some form of MMT and yield curve control. Um, who knows? I mean, when people say that the Fed have run out of ammunition, I, I kind of unfortunately disagree with them. I think the Fed should have run out of ammunition, that they're just making things worse by what they're doing, but um, that they can still open the toolbox to do balance expansion, yield curve control, you buy equities for, you know, for, for, for God's sake. So, so they, you know, it could be, um, there could be more, but it's the, the sort of Damocles, I think, as you say, is that if, if yields go higher, the Fed will have to do something here to, to, to stop that. Otherwise, you know, you see tightening financial conditions, the virtuous cycle that we've seen begins to unwind. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, the, that's the problem. I feel after the intensity of this discussion, um, we need a bit of levity, uh, which of course is our hilarious parlor game of hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Um, Charlotte, you've sort of dropped a few hints actually, let alone potatoes, but let's start with your hot cakes. What would you be buying? So I think something like the um, Mexican peso is quite interesting. The fundamental story is um, it's very solid. Um, I don't think it's going to be hugely impacted by the US election. And something like euro dollar has run uh, a long way. It's given back recently. But but that kind of dollar weakness story feeding into other areas of, of, of currency markets makes sense to me. I hadn't been following the peso, more fool me. Um, but what about your hot potato? What would you be dropping? My hot potato is um, duration at the longer end of the curve and, and gold. So I'm quite short duration here uh, and, and have no gold exposure for the reasons that we have outlined. Anna, your hot cakes. Well, I think um, we talked about China um, and I think um, uh, it's probably uh, quite consensus, but I do think uh, Chinese assets, um, uh, whether it's um, uh, government bonds or credit, uh, are quite attractive, perhaps for income reasons uh, that Steve talked about. As I would say, China assets overall. And in terms of um, hot potato, uh, I I do not think that uh, this... Uh, uh, crazy rally in uh, U.S. tech is sustainable, at least in the longer term, sorry, in the shorter term. So tactically, um, I would be selling U.S. tech uh, Nasdaq. Okay, Steve, what about you, your hot cakes? Hot cake, I think is, um, I think you have to go for it still in environments of financial repression, you need income, you need uh, yield. So China high yield for me, it stands out um, for the reasons we mentioned earlier. And your hot potato? The hot potato—that's a—that's a tricky one. I—I I, just because I, I do think um, all boats are going to be lifted um, with this this tsunami of liquidity. So I just think in the short term, my one concern is when you look at Italian BTPs, which now sub one percent in yield, uh, one hundred and thirty-five basis points over bonds, with balance sheet recession as I mentioned a few minutes ago. I uh, just don't think risk risk reward looks good there. Long China, short Italy. Thank you very much indeed, Steve. And that is all we have time for this month. Hopefully that's provided some food for thought. And if you'd like to feast further, you can read more on our website, fidelityinternational.com. And there's more to listen to, of course, on both our award-winning Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast. Just search for those titles on your podcast app. And please do subscribe and rate us if you have a minute. Thanks very much to my guests today, Anna Stubnitska, Charlotte Harrington, Steve Ellis, and Portfolio Manager Ian Sampson in Hong Kong. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark, with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity International, goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.